Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Welcome to this Sandbox Story. This is an interview with Dr. Ali Kushnavis. Hello, Ali. How are you? Thanks for joining me today. I'm doing great, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, it's a thrill to see you, my friend. We've been friends for a long time. I didn't realize how long until I dug up an email from you the other day from, I think, 2013. Unbelievable, right? It seems like yesterday, honestly. I remember I remember chatting with you for the first time. So it's amazing. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So so here's the thing. You are a brand new father. I've been lucky enough to get these updates from you about your son. Tell us about your family. Oh man. Scott, I think uh, you know, when you read poetry as I do, being Persian, there's a lot of you know, but a lot in my household, my dad used to read poetry all the time. So I was always surrounded by it. And these guys would talk about love and they talked about love in such a way that I never could understand until this little guy came into my life. It's <clears throat> it's really something deep. It's it's I think it's out of this world. And I think it's something that uh it supersedes all the things that you wanted in your life, all the ambitions, all of these things that you think about every single day. When you see your child, you you realize that none of those things actually matter. And that's that's love. And that's the love that Rumi and Hafez talked about. So it's just been a thrill. You know, you're you're tired as can be, you know, because you're up all the time. But uh you know, somehow you get this energy and it comes from somewhere deep inside your soul. So it's been beautiful. Wow, that's great. And and mom and baby are fine. Mom and baby are doing amazing. You know, he had to go get, you know, vaccinated a couple of days ago and you know how they get after after vaccinations, but uh, you know, everyone's doing really really well. That's awesome. Thank, Thank you. you for sharing Thank that. You. So let's talk sure. about your youth. Tell me the story of your family moving to America. You know that's a that's a tough story because um, it uh, it was a difficult time for my family. I was I was just two years old. I was born in Shiraz, Iran. Ironically, my ten year my brother who's ten years older than me and my sister who's twelve years older than me, they were actually born in the United States when my dad was in uh, doing his residency in Boston. So it's funny. I'm the I'm the naturally born Iranian, and uh, but they actually lived it. They were ten years old and twelve years old when they were experiencing us moving out of Iran, or yes, I should say twelve and thirteen around that ballpark. And uh, they're the ones that that really went through everything. But uh, just to what year make was this, that? That was a uh, 1984, 83, 84 is when we left. So for, for folks that don't know the story, I mean, in the 70s, Iran was um, having, you know, a lot of riots and protests and things like that. No one ever expected that there would be a revolution. In 79, a lot of the uh, folks that were supportive of the Islamic movement in Iran were out on the streets and uh, they wanted Iran to be like a time way back in the day when, 
you know, Islam was the rule of the land. And, and so in 79, there was a massive revolution and the king stepped away and that changed everything. At the time, there was a lot of people that thought, wow, this might actually be a good thing because, you know, you can, you, you don't have to lock your doors when you go out at night. You don't have to, uh, you know, there's no drugs or alcohol. There was a lot of uh, this euphoria around the revolution. But very quickly after, everyone realized that that's not the case. And um, in, in 79, in 80, we entered a war with Iraq. 1980, we, in 81, 82, we started losing that war. And, uh, and so what the Iranian government did was they would take these young 13 to 15-year-old boys out of school, and they would have them run the mines in southern Iran. And they, they literally wouldn't give them any weapons or anything. They just wanted them to run the mines. And if, if they found a gun, pick it up and start shooting people. And that actually turned the tide in this war because, the, you know, it was such a strong movement. They, they, you hear the word jihad now, but back in 70, back in 80 and 81, that was a term that they used. And these, some parents would willingly let their children go to war, but after that, after not very, not very long after that, a lot of parents were terrified that their children might have to go to war. And my dad made a decision. And Scott, I, I mean, you, you probably know this, but the folks listening probably don't. My, my father was educated in the United States. He did his residency here. He was a physician. Uh, he could practice in the United States, and he chose to go back to Iran because it was a good place to live and he cared about the people there and he wanted to serve. And that's why he became a doctor. And, and it was a very difficult decision, but if you talk to anyone in our family, we had everything you could ever want in Iran. We had a nice house, cars, this and that. We didn't leave Iran because we were in need. We left because there was some bad things happening and it was, a, it was, quite spectacular. It was, I think about it as a father now, and I'm sure you, you could put yourself in that shoe as well, thinking what decision my dad had to make and my mom and dad. And they literally overnight packed my brother and sister up because they were born in the United States. They could come here safely, put them on a plane, and they essentially came to Paris at first and then went to the United States without my father my mother and I, and I think about that, and it just it, to me, it's you know, it, it's a very difficult time in our family's life, and to be separated from your twelve and thirteen year old boy and girl, and uh, you know, the it, it was it was a challenge, but I think a lot of us, you know, my speak for my brother and my sister here, we really there was a big burden on our backs because we, we knew very well the, the struggle that my parents went through. They left everything. They left the house. They left all their money in the bank. They, you couldn't withdraw money at that time. We're in the middle of a war. They left everything. They got on a plane and they came, they came to Paris because we couldn't come to the United States at the time. And we felt a great de deal of debt to, to our mom and dad. And part of the reason why I think all three of us became, you know, optometrists is because we very much felt strongly about 
making our parents happy and making that journey not one in vain. We really wanted to exceed their expectations of us. And, you know, I think many people know this, but yeah, a lot of a lot of Iranian parents are like, you need to be a doctor, you need to be a doctor. And so, you know, we went we went down that path and it's been a beautiful story because all of all three of us absolutely love, you know, the fact that we went down that road. We became optometrists. We were able to serve and uh, now we all do something a little bit different. And that, that's the beauty of our profession. And, and uh, that's why I'm a big advocate for it. I really am. Well, this inspiration you took from your parents to protect their kids and how that carries through in each of you and how you protect your families, I'm sure is amazing. And you have developed an incredible life and family basis here. Your parents uh, moved here and, and grew you. And uh, tell me about your family and where they are today, Eastern United States, uh, Florida. No, uh, my my parents, my brother and sister all live in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I hope to find myself back there again. That's where, you know, I grew up in a small town outside of North Carolina. And it's funny for the folks who don't know me, they hear, you know, this Southern accent and they think, yeah, man, this guy's from Alabama or something like that. But uh, I grew up in this tiny town where I was very different than anyone else there. And my parents, you know, they, they were always incredibly supportive of me and, you know, but deep down inside, all I wanted to do, Scott, is fit in like, like any child. And I think, you know, getting us, having a Southern accent is part of that. Um, I, you know, I did whatever I could to fit in. <laughs> and so um, it, it, it's been a beautiful story for me because as I've grown up, I've realized that uh, that's what's driven me. I've always wanted to be accepted, wanted to be liked. And I think when you recognize those type of things, you realize some very different things bubble up in your life and you you start to change and you start to understand who you are as a person and what drives you. And, and that can also change your life tremendously. But my father, just to go back to the question, he, you know, he, I really admire him tremendously because he was a solo practitioner, OBGYN, which is pretty much unheard of now. And he delivered almost every kid that was about five years old and younger in my and and and, and uh, older in my town from the time I was five till till I grew up. He literally delivered all of the children in my town, and we would go to restaurants in our little small town, and everyone would come up with their kids and say, "Hey, Doctor Koshnevis, do you remember delivering?" You know, and it was a really neat experience. But it, I think that drove my father every single day. He could wake up at three in the morning and go and deliver a baby. And he did, he never, not one time did I ever hear him complain about it until about 10 days before he retired. He came to me and said, I can't do this anymore. I, I literally can't do it. Yeah. And, and 10 days later, he was retired. This guy is wow. the most amazing thing. But it was just like an overnight thing for my father. But he took a lot of pride in it. And he loved it. And he loved taking care of the people in our hometown. Well, I know you and your brother, and you are two of the most amazing and giving people I've ever met. And this idea that all three of you siblings went into optometry is a demonstration of your want to care for the world. Um, 
I know your dad was a physician. I, I know that there's a caring aspect, but how did it end up that each of you went into optometry? <laughs> you know, my brother has a funny joke about this. He said, my, you know, my dad has this really thick Persian accent. He said, you all must be OBs. And we thought he said OD. So we all became optometrists. <laughs> the, rea the, the reality of it is we had a, we had a very close friend who was in our small town in North Carolina. He had a wonderful practice, Al Covington. And I grew up with his children and they were dear friends of ours. And he was essentially a, a physician in our town. Scott, as you know, when you're in a small town, there's not an ophthalmologist within, you know, an hour's driving distance. He did everything. And my dad said, I'm waking up at three in the morning delivering kids. And Al is, you know, working nine to five. And he is, is admired in the town. He's loved. He does great work. He does beautiful things. He's like, you guys should seriously consider becoming an optometrist. And it also gives you an opportunity to, you know, help people. And, and you know, Amir always says, like, we're just a sucker for helping folks. But it's just it's, it's in our DNA. That's that's who we are. And I don't think that that makes us good good or bad. I don't look at the world that way. I think we all have a, a unique purpose and a unique drive. And that's just ours. And it really stemmed from my grandmother. We, we would literally watch my grandmother. She would give the clothes off her back for someone in need. But that's just how she grew up. And the, you know that's the way she looked at the world. So you, you become very influenced by something like that, as you can imagine. It's been so, it's been a thrill. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So you are one of many optometrists who went on and did a residency after graduation. Tell us about that. I did. I never thought I'd do a residency. You know, when you choose your internship sites in your fourth year, I chose Bascom Palmer. And there was a lot of reasons for that. Partly was I liked Miami. I wanted to go down there and experience that. But I also knew it was a world class facility. When I got there and I started to see all this disease, I just became almost obsessed with trying to solve these problems. So I really put my head in the books, but I spent so much time with all the various doctors. You go through a uveitis clinic, you go into a retina clinic, you go to ocular oncology clinic, and all you see is oncology all day long or uveitis all day long. You see the most spectacular things. And uh, I wanted to learn more about that. So I became really close with uh, Mark Dunbar, who was the residency residency coordinator. And we, we actually became dear friends. And I said, look, I, I want to learn more. He said, come back for a residency. I think it's, I think it'll be worth your while. And I'm so glad I did that because six months wasn't enough. Being there for a year and six months was spectacular and just rotating through all the clinics, going to the grand rounds and just immersing myself and and things that we would never see. I had a cool case that I presented, which I don't think many people get to see, but there was a case of uh, Duzen and um, there was literally this hookworm that we discovered. And what's cool about this particular case and why I like to tell the story is we were in neuro-ophthalmology. This lady had been to every doctor across the country. No one believed her. They even sent her to psychiatry. 
They sent her to, you know, she was at will. She was all over the place. She finally, she said, this is my last chance. And Bascom Palmer's ranked number one. I read it here. And when we checked her VA, she was 2070. The neuro-ophthalmologist came in the room. He said, this is a retina case. Get him out of my, get her out of my office. We went, we went down to the retina clinic. They said, I can't find anything wrong with her. The optometrist who was working at Bascom Palmer, her name's Michelle Caputo. She's like, no, let's, let's take a closer look here. And she was adamant about finding what was wrong. So she was in the retina for a little while. I'm looking through the teaching tube. And here we go. She goes, oh, my God, did you just see what I saw? And I said, yeah, I did. And there was a, a little worm just that came up out of the photoreceptors, came into the, the outer layers of the retina and just started swimming around really quickly and then went back in. Wow. We went down, got retina again. The retina doctor said, take her in front of the laser. We waited there for about three hours for it to reappear. We we're taking pictures like crazy. Finally, it came back up, lasered it. Vision went back to about 2040, about a couple weeks later. So it was an amazing case. It was fun. I mean, that's what residence is all about. And optometry, yeah. although not terribly controversial that residency isn't required, it isn't like physicianry where residency is required. Do you have an opinion on whether optometry should move that direction? It's not up to you and me, but do you have a point of view? <laughs> no, I, I really don't, Scott. I think that doctors should practice the way you know they they want to. I don't think it's absolutely necessary. I, I'm, you know, I'm probably not a better practitioner because I did that residency. I think I can honestly say that. I think what, what's important is how you practice, what modality you want to go into. If you're going to go primary care, you're going to take care of people like Amir and I did in Charlotte and have a private practice. You know, you might not need to know about do's and necessarily, but you need to be able to recognize and, and, and identify issues. But most importantly, you got to understand patients and take good care of them, be empathetic. I wish I, I have an opinion about that. I wish we taught doctors how to be more empathetic and caring. And I think that that should be a course in school where all we do is talk about how we can understand people, listen to their stories. Let, let them tell us things that maybe aren't eye related and, and how to take better care of them. I think that's what made me a really good practitioner. Well, you've practiced in a lot of different clinical settings, including with your brother. And one of the things that you and I both share is we became interested in technology. And yeah. we have this want to do a humanitarian, empathetic kind of healthcare delivery, but we also wanted to develop technology platforms. And Mine happened to be one type. Yours was different. You had a story around the technology that you and your brother thought about building, and it's around empathy. And I'd be thrilled for you to share the story of how you got here and the story of the patient behind it. Oh, sure. I'd love to do that. You know, it's. A, I think when I talk about this story, it changed my life, much like I'm sure yours yours did as well. And I think all entrepreneurs sort of start at a place like this, or at least they want to solve a problem. This was a particular patient that Amir, my brother, had taken care of for many, many years. And on one particular evening, he was in, in the practice and he came in, 
He wasn't feeling well. We had monitored him. We we were working with his PCP to try to keep his, you know, his hypertension, diabetes, all of that under control. But he seemed to progress. And on one particular uh, visit, my brother sat down with him and said, "You know what? What's really going on? I, every time I see you." You know, you seem to be getting worse. You're always in good spirits, but every time I look at your retina, it seems to get worse. What's your PCP saying? What's actually happening? And he was a prideful guy, you know, like many, many Southern guys, you know, as you can imagine, they don't want to talk about their finances or their work situation. But he trusted my brother and he said, Look, I am choosing between putting food on the table taking these expensive medications. He wasn't Medicare eligible, but he was in his late 50s. And he had a high deductible health plan where he had to pay out of pocket for all of his medications until he hits his deductible. And he, he was saying, he was telling us, my, my drugs are expensive. And my brother and I actually looked at the list of his medications. And almost all of them were generic. So we're scratching our heads and this is thinking, this is 20, this is 2010. This is before GoodRx or any way that you can find prices for medications efficiently. So we're thinking Walmart $4 generics. Why is this, why is this an issue? And literally we started picking up the phone and calling his pharmacies. And he was taken. We went down the list. We asked if we could get a price for all of his medications because my brother remembered prescribing someone Toberdex not long before this event. And they called my brother and said, wow, that Toberdex was $80. Can you believe that? And my brother was like, wow, it was because I it's like 40 bucks at the Walmart. And so he realized that there could be a discrepancy and he was exactly right. When we called around, it went, it was $150 at, at CVS that he was going to, which was on the right hand side of the street on his way home, how we all pick pharmacies. And then Walgreens was 130 and Walmart was 70 and Rite Aid was even lower. It was like 55. And then we called a mom and pop pharmacy that happened to be within a mile of his CVS. And it was $11 and we almost dropped our phone. We couldn't even believe it. And, and what, what's sad about this story is the fact that not even a couple weeks later, his wife came back into to our office and he had a massive stroke. And unfortunately he passed away in the hospital. And that was at that I mean, at the, at, at the time when we were taking care of him, we didn't even have a, an inkling, an idea, a thought to try to build something that would show people prices. We just were trying to help one individual person. When he passed away, it was a very difficult experience for, for my brother and I. We couldn't believe that we were sitting there just a couple of weeks before talking about this with him. And so it was really the impetus for us to start something called WeRx. And at the time, we had no idea how you can build technology or a piece of software. We just we we're just going at it with our hearts. And we had no intent. Honestly, we didn't even try to raise money because 
when we went into this, we said, look, let's just put our own money into this. Let's not muddy the waters. Let's not get investors because we had heard so many stories that, you know, investors might change the mission or might try to do things that don't align with us trying to help someone like our, our dear patient that we were taking care of. So we didn't do that. And and actually, you know, and I don't think that that's the only reason, but GoodRx came out almost simultaneously to us. And I'm, I'm actually friends with the co-CEOs there. I know them very well. We've always had this friendly rivalry, if you will, even though they, they blew us out of the water. <laughs> you know, they're three billion. I think, I think now they're like a $10 billion. I think their IPO was incredible, but um you know, it, it was amazing. I, and I think the reason why they they were friendly with us is because they knew we were coming at it from the heart. And, and, and you know, you don't it, it, this is that's the beauty of being an entrepreneur. It's not always about failure and success. It's about doing something that you care about, because I can guarantee if Amir was on here with us, he'd say that that was some of the best times of his life. Just that journey, even though it was very difficult and painful and heart, you know, we, we put our heart and soul into it and it didn't turn out necessarily the way we wanted it to. It was it was beautiful to be in that process and to go through those things. And I know you, you've experienced it firsthand. Well, I'm just going to add editorially that I think most of the listeners that are optometrists understand the critical role that eye care providers play in the health and wellness of their patients because good vision is good health. But the fact of the matter is most don't understand how much effort is made by optometrists in a community that are caring for the eyesight of patients that are being taken care of by PCPs and other healthcare providers and encouraging them to take their medications and, and find ways for them to be healthier. And for anybody who watches today's Sandbox story, I want to use your story to help them understand that that is a common everyday thing that happens in optometry, that the wellness of these patients, they, they become almost like family members, because when you're caring for their eyesight, you're caring for their quality of life, right, Ali? And, yeah, absolutely and so it, are. it gets to the point where they often feel like we're almost more accessible than their healthcare providers. And so I think that's just an important part of the message, given the story you told us about your patient. It's it's exactly why I love our profession so much, because there's not a time I don't go and talk with someone and I can just sense that they care tremendously about the patient. You know, it, it's all the other things that make practicing challenging, like you're dealing with managed vision care, and this and that. When it boils down to it and the humans there in front of you, I think optometry is excels amongst other health professions and, and being able to take care of people and, and, and the things that they do that are above and beyond. Uh, I love that. And I, and I, I think that commentary is, is really nice. And I appreciate you adding that there. Well, you kept going in the technology realm. You drove forward with another product with some other co-founders that was around the critical importance of patient communication and patient engagement. And I would suspect that today, 2020, most ECPs do some form of technology-based communication with patients. 
But I'm wondering, as you sat back and watched the progress of patient communication processes through technology, if you have a point of view for doctors and patient staff of clinics, how they can better use their systems to, or enhance their use of systems um, to communicate with patients? You know, I think if we don't learn to adapt or change, then we become you know, in a situation where it's not good. I think that putting our foot in the, in, in the, in, you know, in the mud and not trying to change can be detrimental to our practices. I still think that there's some beautiful things that we do that should not change. But one of the things that we can add to how how well we take care of patients, as you mentioned before, I think we do better than almost any healthcare professional out there but to be where the patients are. So right now, if we're not thinking about Google reviews, for example, if we're not thinking about communicating to patients via text message, if we're not thinking about patient portals and some of the things that you and I have been working on, if we're not, if, if that's not even a glimmer in our eyes, we don't care about that, we don't even wanna talk about it, then our patients suffer because they grow up in a world where they can communicate with all of their brands and and various you know services that they they use whether it's you know they, they, even their yoga studio or something they can talk to people via text they can talk via a portal of some sort if they're not able to talk to to their practitioner and ask a question or send a, you know, my, you know, I told you my son had vaccines two days ago and his leg was swollen. I just took a picture and sent it to the pediatrician just for peace of mind. And she responded to it. And to me, that is everything in this world. And I'm not one of those, I'm not one of those, you know, millennials where everything has to be via text or I, I'll pick up the phone and call people and millennials won't do that. But it was so important for me to be able to just take an image, send it to her, get a response back. And that meant the world to me. So I wonder how someone feels it's having a, an eye problem. I mean, as I was coming in here, the, you know, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm in my office now, I'm settled in. And the, and the front desk, the receptionist there is asking me questions about her friend who's losing her peripheral vision. You know, and this is how folks are communicating if they know a doc and but to put their mind at ease and say, okay, look, bring them in. Let's talk. Let, just, just to have that communication, I think, is critically important. I think we'd be failing if we don't at least acknowledge that the world around us is changing a little bit. And certainly the healthcare technology for communication has to comply with federal law, HIPAA, and standards of protecting the information of the patient. So yeah. we're not neither of us are saying that we should put those things to the side. But in okay. a day yeah. of electronic transactional relationships, <clears throat> furthered by the 2020 pandemic, where to your point, you can communicate with almost any provider of anything to you electronically, um, it is really important that ECPs embrace those technologies and use them as broadly as they can. Um, and I'm just really grateful that you always pointed out to the people that we serve that that was important. You may, you always made a comment about something called the, I think it was the zero moment of truth. <laughs> yeah. In, in, yeah. In, that, in, in affecting a patient, just summarize the zero moment of truth. Oh, that, that's a, that's a 
big, big research that Google made. It's probably five to seven years old now, but it's very valid. I think I read a study yesterday that said it was a Becker Hospital study that said 71% of patients will research their doctor before choosing a doctor. 71, that's not millennials, that's everybody. So it, it, the zero moment of truth is absolutely a, a, a fact in our world. And what, what Google discovered is, listen, before anyone makes a decision, it used to be that they would see an advertisement on TV, they would go into a store, they would see that product that was advertised and they would purchase it. But now there's something that happens before that. And that is actually researching products or a problem that they're having and finding products that that solve that problem. It's not the TV ad for the latest shampoo. It might be, wait a minute, I need a new type of shampoo because I'm, you know, my, my, you know, whatever, I have an issue itching or whatnot. They're going to search that first. They're going to see reviews. They're going to see what other people who buy that product say. And then they will, then they might forget about it, get a TV ad, then go in and buy that product. So if we use the zero moment of truth in our own practices, it might be something like be where your patients are. Try to get people to review you on Google because that's going to affect your search engine optimization. The more reviews you have, the higher ranking you have, the higher you show up on a Google search result. And then they're going to be, then your patients are going to read about what other patients feel about your practice, your doctors and your staff members. That's the zero moment of truth. Then they're going to make a decision. It's a new word of mouth if you think about it. And so I think that that's, it's valid now and it's happening more and more. And I think most eye care clinics have made efforts around website design and SEO and embraced systems of ratings and um, even use ratings for internal purposes, staff training and other things. But there is not a cohesive approach that most practices take. If the listeners here, there's somebody who has this lockdown, fantastic system, you're really unique. The rest of you who are doing bits and pieces of it um, should continue to focus on resources that are available in the market to help you with this. Because I talked to an eye care marketing person the other day, and, and the point that he made was, if you aren't actively looking for getting solid ratings from the service you provide onto Google reviews, you effectively are not in business. Yeah. It's so true. And that, that, I mean, every year Google, I think, puts their reviews higher and higher amongst the list of probably 200 things that they look at when they decide where to rank your practice. So if you put, you know, iDoctor and, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, there's going to be 50 factors that, 100 factors that maybe Google looks at as to whether or not to rank your practice higher than the next. But Google reviews are going higher and higher every single year, and they're becoming more and more important. So I think that it's incredibly important to try to get reviews, get your patients to talk about you. And that's the word of mouth. That's the new word of mouth. Well, as we wind down, Ellie, are there any final bits of wisdom that you were thinking about during our chat that you didn't have a chance to mention that you'd like to share? Uh, you know, I, I'd say, you know, I love I love what you're doing here, Scott, because 
I'm of the belief that, you know, the storyteller has the, you know, the closest seat by the fireplace and, and stories have been things that are incredibly important since the beginning of time. That's why our mythologies and, you know, whatever religion you, you, you adhere to, they're all intertwined with these beautiful stories. We all have a story to tell. So I encourage everyone to look at their lives that way. Tell your story, live out a story, create your own myth and be a part of that. And I think that's what makes life beautiful and why I really appreciate you doing this and taking the time to have me on this show, which I, I'm, I'm humbled by, is that, you know, you're allowing folks to tell that story. And I appreciate that tremendously. And I, I love hearing the stories that you have to tell. And I'll continue subscribing to it and looking forward to all the things you got to share with us out there. And uh, of course, if anybody ever needs anything or has any questions or concerns or thinking about being an entrepreneur and would like any guidance, I'm always there and happy to help in any way I can. So, you know, please feel free to reach out to me. Well, I love the Kushneda story. I love your part of that family story. Uh, it's um, in energizing. It's the best word I can use right at the moment. Um, thank you so much for sharing it all with us today. Uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, everyone, you know, my goal with Sandbox Stories is to bring unique perspective and stories that fit um, to a narrative of telling you about people in this market and industry you've never met or don't know as much about as you do after you get to meet them here. And so I can't thank Ali enough for sharing this life's journey. And also thank you for everything you've done for other optometrists. Thank you, Scott. I, I could say the same for you. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful day. I appreciate you spending the time with me. Sure thing. For my audience, thanks for tuning in. And until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.